I'm happy that you're here this morning. You happy to be here? Ready for a sermon? Or should we just have the benediction? I've just had church with the Spanish. My Spanish is in need of improvement. But then I've always thought, so is my English. <laughs> this week I've been at Leone Meadows for three days. Um, the main speaker there was Larry Richards, if any of you know him. I, I do have a Bible commentary by him on 1 Corinthians, which I thought was very good when I read it some time ago, so I was kind of pleased to actually get to meet him. Um, he was talking about how we received the Bible, how the Bible came to us. So I found that very interesting. His bottom line was, um, if all you have in life is maybe the worst translation around, cherish it as the Word of God. Some translations are stronger than others, but they are all the Word of God. And they all can lead you to God. They can all, all keep you close to God. And then we, had, we watched a movie, which apparently will be in your theaters soon. And maybe I'll tell you more about this um, next week when I learn a little bit more about um, when it's actually hitting the theaters. But it was essentially about Campbell and plant-based diet. And I think, it, uh, I think it pricked the consciences of many of the people in the audience there that they can do better with their diet than they're actually doing. But that was, um, that was well worth watching. So if it does come into the theaters in this area, or later if we can get a DVD, um, we'll probably, uh, if we're able to, we'll probably show it at our church, or at least I'll encourage you to, to purchase it. I'll, I'll borrow it from the church library so you can watch it yourself. So there were lots of good things. The weather was quite good there. Um, you never know at Leone, you can get snowed out, so you can hardly even get in there, or once you're in there, can you get out, is sometimes a concern, but all of that worked well. Uh, the conference is facing financial challenges. Um, many, many, uh, many of, you, of you, many of us, have been affected with, with losing our jobs or, or having... Uh, our challenges with our finances in some way or another. So the tithe is down in the conferences. Not all of the churches have reported yet, so the final figures are not in, but, uh, but certainly we're going to be lucky if we even break, break even. So, so just remember some of those things in your mind. And one other thing I'd like you to, to bear in mind too is on Tuesday evening, uh, we're starting our midweek meeting again. So those of you that that um, came to prayer meeting in the past. Those of you that feel the need of spiritual renewal, please come Tuesday at seven o'clock. I'm gonna lay the emphasis at least for two or three weeks on revival and reformation. This is an emphasis that's coming from our world church. Um, it's something that Ellen White always had a burden for when they would have uh, Meetings like the General Conference 88, 1888 General Conference session, uh, God wanted to, to pour himself out rather than the brethren 
to divide and debate on the horns in Daniel, for example. What would you sooner have? Would you sooner be right theologically, or would you sooner have a sense of the presence of God? Revival and Reformation uh, is what I'll be emphasizing on Tuesdays, so I think we all need that. There's nothing that I would wish for this church more than that. Pretty much everything we've tried gives us very limited results, right? I've had three years to try different things here and see different ministries happening at this church, and I know that we're at a point where we need to get down on our knees more than we are, where we need to stretch for God and allow Him to do miracles in our midst. Last night, maybe, was the beginning of that where an emphasis was laid, for those of you that came last night, on learning to love. Well, pastor, I don't need to learn how to love, really. Is Anderson the most loving church family on planet Earth? Do we have something, do we have room to grow in that area? So I was very encouraged with the the emphasis that was given um, last night. It's an emphasis that I would like to run with for the next few weeks in my sermons. So we'll be dealing with love, forgiveness, and related subjects in the next few weeks. Let us bow our heads as we open God's word. Father in heaven, we thank you for all of your goodness, all of your blessings, all of your love towards us. Really hard for us to understand at times, Lord, how you can love us when, when we really don't love you like we should. And we certainly don't love others like we love ourselves. So please help us, Lord, in our infirmity, in our spiritual weakness, to open our minds first, broaden our understanding of what you are all about, what Christ died for, on the cross, what Christianity really means. And Lord, I pray that we will be loving and lovable Christians, as Jesus was. We know he was because he died on the cross for us. And he went through Gethsemane, and he went through the torture and the abuse for us. And last week, Lord, we we commemorated that when we took the bread and the wine. We, We remembered our Lord and his sacrifice on the cross. Now, Lord, show us how to live the Christian life the way you wish us to. So we invite the presence of your Holy Spirit to to linger here and to work in our minds and our hearts to make us like Jesus is our prayer. In his name we pray, amen. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, we have... um, a very, very crucial passage. Let me say to you, just as you're looking up that passage in Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 28, that there are other parallel passages. I think most of you know that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have some sayings of Jesus or some actions of Jesus that are repeated. Matthew may say it, And Mark may say it, and maybe Luke says very little about it, and John says nothing. Or sometimes we'll have a saying or uh, an action of Jesus, a miracle or whatever, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have something to say about it. So a parallel passage 
to the one in Mark. If any of you are writing notes, want to study this when you go home, is Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. And I will jump between those two passages, though I will stay mainly in Mark just, for the, just to make things easy. But some of the things I say are, are lifted from Matthew. Most of them are from Mark. Before I read the scripture with you, I want to give you a little bit of the background. The background is we're in the temple courts. We need to think of religious worship. We need to think of sacrifices being made, animal sacrifices being made. We need to think of religious groups like Pharisees and Sadducees that had maybe some things in common but also had differences. Do you know any church groups that have differences of opinion? Do you know any church families where you have different groups within the church family that have different understandings of things? So the Word of God is always relevant because even though we can, we sometimes raise our eyebrows at how petty some of these religious people could be, we see ourselves in the story, or we should see ourselves in the story. These stories are not given to us to show you, to show you and I how the Pharisees or the Sadducees messed up. It's to draw us into the picture, into the story, so that we can apply these truths to ourselves. So in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, it says, one of the teachers of the law, we learn from Matthew that he was a Pharisee, came and heard them debating. Who is debating? Who's them? Well, if your eyes just go up the page a little bit, you'll see it's the Sadducees debating with Jesus about the resurrection. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. Do you like the answers of Jesus? You know, the answers of Jesus are quite challenging at times. I always think of Jesus as being the epitome of the unexpected. Here's a man that can be, live his life totally in harmony with the law as, as they experienced it in those days, as you find it in the Word of God, and yet would always take his audience uh, and give them another perspective. So if he gave an answer, the answer wouldn't be, well, you already know this. The answer would be, well, here's what you should know, and here's the extra mile that you need to go. Here's another way of looking at it. But anyway, Jesus gave good answers. Obviously, this teacher of the law liked the answer that he gave. Uh, it seemed to fit in with the Pharisees' understanding of the resurrection. And so he asked this question. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, when you and I read all the commandments, what do we think of? The 10. But what if you were in a setting where you had to think of 600 plus? Because that's what they had in those days. 
They were to have oral teachings that some of them would consider commandments or authoritative statements. And then, of course, they would have written statements too. So they would have 600, and then they would debate, well, here's, here's hundreds and hundreds of laws. Which is the most important one? I don't think I would have been enjoyed being a pastor in those days. I think it would have been pretty challenging, as we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. It would be quite challenging. So which is the most important? So Jesus answers, and he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What do we call that? Does anybody know? Well, in my study Bible here, it says we call that the Shema. Don't know if my pronunciation is is correct. It's the Jewish confession of faith recited by pious Jews every morning and evening. And to this day, it begins every synagogue service. So here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And of course, in the minds of many, God was God, in the minds of a lot of the people, God was many. Polytheism. Here, no, God is one. And this one God who we think of as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has one, has one purpose, one intent in mind. And here's what our response should be in verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all of your what? Heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And if there's anybody on planet Earth who thinks they have never sinned, then read this verse, commit it to memory, say this verse to them. Because there's not a one of us that's loved God with all of our heart, all of the time, right? So it's actually a very good verse to use in convicting people of sin. There's other ways of doing it. You can walk people through the Ten Commandments. The best way is to introduce them to Jesus and let them see the life of Jesus, and hopefully they'll become convicted of sin and fall in love and commit themselves, surrender themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. The word love is the Greek word what? Agape, agape, which is not the kind of love where you have warm fuzzes all the time. It's the kind of, I don't think Jesus, when Jesus was in Gethsemane, when Jesus was being abused and tortured, had warm fuzzes. Do you? The agape love is a principled love. It's a love that will will go the extra mile. It's the love that will lay down the life if needed. So it's Christ's love for us that we're talking about. So love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and again, as I said, he takes us back to Deuteronomy, which is not unusual. Jesus uh, would do that, and the people of his days would expect that. There was no New Testament written at this period in time. I don't know if you know, but Paul's writings were written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And there's big implications of that because Paul is always the one that's used in the Christian community to disparage the law, right? Paul is the one that they use, whether it be Galatians or whether it be Romans, he's the one that speaks negatively about the law of God. Not always, but quite often. And it's very important to remember with Paul, in interpreting Paul, that Paul was not writing theological letters, he was writing pastoral letters. And, and biblical scholars, people that are very clever, for example, in working with the Greek text, sometimes uh, get very frustrated with Paul because sometimes he'll make a statement and he'll go off on a tangent or he'll get too excited about what he writes about. They want him to be a little bit more detached, a little bit more objective, a little bit more consistent. Paul was a pastor before he was a theologian. And I believe he was a great theologian, don't you think so? Very deep theology in some places, but essentially these are pastoral letters written to churches that had uh, issues and he was trying to help them as a pastor. So we, gave, we give special attention to what Jesus says and we look on Paul as an interpreter of Jesus. Jesus' life, Jesus' sayings. That's probably the best way to look at the New Testament and to realize that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written later than Paul's writings. We think that 1 Thessalonians was probably, possibly the first letter to be written. And Paul is giving us the first sermon on Jesus. So I'm not preaching on Paul this morning, but I wanted to throw that in for what it is worth. And I can actually take you to a passage that is relevant, Romans 13. Just turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 13. Are any of you in debt this morning? Credit cards, automobiles, mortgages. Any of you have any debt this morning? Well, even if those of you that are strutting and say, no, pastor, I have no debt, with a big smile on your face because it feels good to be free of debt, right? Paul tells you in Romans 13, verse 8, that you do have a debt. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to do what? To love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. Whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as what? Whew, that's pretty hard. But that is Christian living. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So there's a very positive statement by Paul, obviously in light of what Christ has said in his lifetime about the law of God and about love. And it's very interesting that Paul, who seems to be in other places so negative about Actually, he's negative about a misuse of the law. He knows that if God gives something, it's a good gift. 
So if God gives ceremonial law, moral law, whatever law we're talking about, health laws, civil laws, there's all sorts of laws in the Bible, God gives it for the good of his people. And it's interesting how, like Jesus, he sums it all up. Let's bring it. What's the most important thing to catch for all these, with all this emphasis on law? Because people that give a, a large emphasis on law, as Seventh-day Adventists do, probably more than many denominations do, it's very easy to slip into legalism. Because you have a focus, and you have a focus on law. Well, to guard against that, you explain law in the context of relationship. So what Jesus does, that's what Paul does in these passages we're looking at this morning. And I would suggest in, in all, all of the Sabbath, I'd love to do a series on the Sabbath and deal with Jesus and the Sabbath. And it always seems to me that the, the real issue with law-keeping and Sabbath-keeping in his day, it always related in some way to him. It wasn't just a matter of, of, of what is the intent of this law, which of course is really, really important. I mean, why did God give the Israelites his law at Mount Sinai? That, that's a question that a lot of Christians don't really understand. So we do want to know about purpose and intent, but at the end of the day, it always stops with Jesus. So when you and I, and we can learn something from that, when you and I try and share truths about the law of God, about the commandments of God, about something like the Sabbath, always try and do it in the context of a relationship. Sometimes we have, we have words for that called covenant. So we have an old covenant, and we have a new covenant, and, and so on and so forth. But just to keep it real simple, do it in terms of, of relationship. Jesus said, if you love me, relationship, if you love me, what will you do? Keep my commandments. So, it's, it's, so if I use a verse like that, it's very easy to understand that when we're talking about law and commandments, we should always try and talk about it in terms of relationship. Not in terms of uh, being punished, even though that is an aspect of not keeping law. Someone has to be punished, right? Right? Jesus is punished on the cross because of law breaking. There's always a penalty for law breaking. But try and explain it more in terms of love, in terms of relationship, and I think we are much closer to the heart of God and to the heart of the Bible when we, we do that. I think, uh, I'm not going to take you to the passage, but I think of uh, a passage that's kind of been on my mind all week for some reason, um, where this, this woman has been afflicted for 18 years. Remember the story? And Jesus actually says that Satan had done that, and of course, he's always the cause of of, of problems for human beings, but this woman that has been afflicted by Satan and Jesus, she doesn't ask for anything, she just comes to worship that day in the synagogue and Jesus singles her out and heals her. And the religious leaders go ballistic. There's six days in the week to do those good works. Why on earth would you do it 
on the Sabbath. And then, of course, as, as Sabbath keepers, most of us here this morning uh, call ourselves Sabbath keepers, we have to ask the same question. Well, why did he? Is that something, if you had the ability to heal, is that something that you would do on the Sabbath, specifically on the Sabbath? Or would you choose some other occasion? If you are living in a society that says, no, 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 don't do those things on the Sabbath, would you still do it to, to, to highlight something? And what would Jesus be highlighting? That the Sabbath is the symbol of redemption. The Sabbath is the symbol of rest and wholeness and healing. So there's another way of talking about the law of God, the Sabbath, talk of the Sabbath in terms of your rest in Christ. Um, just, just different emphasis than we normally give that where you can talk about a truth like the law of God, uh, the commandments of God, but do it in a way where it's relational. And many people will relate to that much better than saying do it or else. Or do it because God wrote it with his finger on stone. Well, yes, he did write it with his finger on stone to make a point of the importance of it but if you're trying to get into the hearts of people and lead them to Christ, which I hope every one of you is doing that, then we have to talk of these things in terms of relationship, just like Jesus did. Love the Lord your God with how? Not with fear and trembling, but with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. Mark has, adds the mind with all of your strength, with the whole being. All right, and then verse 31, the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So which is the most important? Loving God with all your heart or loving your neighbor as yourself? Or are, are these two really one? What God has joined together, let no man separate, cut asunder. That's the way that I see this. But I do see a religious community that would talk about loving God more than they would talk about loving the neighbor. Now, both of the passages are from the Old Testament. The first, loving God, is from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And the second, loving your neighbor as yourself, is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. So let's take our Bibles and look at that. Which book did I say? That's your favorite bedtime reading, yes? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Believe it or not, I heard of a pastor that had a revival in his church from preaching a whole series on the book of Leviticus. It says there, do not seek revenge, bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that what we just found? In Mark, I am the Lord. But then, of course, the question would come up, well, who is my neighbor? Because in the context here in Leviticus, your neighbor is your fellow Israelite. And one of the hardest things that you find in the New Testament is to broaden the perspective of the Jewish person. 
to realize that it's not all about just the Jews. Yes, salvation comes of the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. God specially worked through the Jewish people, but he worked through the Jewish people for the, for the salvation of the whole planet, for the whole population on planet Earth. We know, it. of course, it didn't quite turn out that way, but that was the commission that originally was given to the Jews and was given, certainly, to the Christian church. So, if we want to make it a little bit just about us kind of thing, we have to go to verse 34 of Leviticus 19, where it says, When an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living you with you must be treated as one of your native-born. Love him as yourself. And as we come to the New Testament, the question was still being asked, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives us the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there are other passages too to show that anybody in need is your neighbor. And that's pretty challenging. It's not about us just taking care of one another, which clearly is an emphasis in the New Testament, but it's also about taking care of others too. Loving them as we love ourselves. Do you love yourself? Are we supposed to love ourselves? There's a lot of books in, in Barnes and Noble or Borders to talk, talking about self-esteem. And I personally believe it's very important to have good self-esteem. And I think everyone who understands the gospel should have good self-esteem. If they don't have good self-esteem, they don't understand the gospel. So we should realize that we're a child of God. We're not an accident. We're not an afterthought. I've never found it appealing that you and I emerge from the bog. Boom! We just somehow came out of the slime. It's much more attractive to me, the creation account in the Bible, where we came from the hand of God. Made in His image. That's worth a sermon right there. Made in his image. What does that mean? At least it means that we can relate to God. We can worship God. It's very relational, that concept. Okay, so we are to love as we love ourselves. And most of us in this room don't have a problem in taking care of ourselves. I hope you have good self-esteem. Many of you do, some of you don't but you should have it. I preach the gospel enough here that you should have it by now, right? I mean, after all, it's good news. So if it's good news, it should be attractive, it should be something you want to share, it should be something that, that uh, excites you, puts a spring in your step, right? One of the, uh, one of the best stories I've ever heard and I can just, just barely touch upon it this morning, is um, a man called Henry Nguyen. Any of you heard of Henry? All right, just a few of you have. And if any of you would like this material from me, uh, or maybe I can, for this, I don't have much time now, but maybe I can bring it in a sermon on another day. But anyway, Henry was a brilliant man. 
He was an academic, intellectual, taught at Harvard, um, but he was also a restless man. Henry was always trying to find his home, his spiritual home. Anyway, Henry walked away from a lucrative career where he was flying all over the world, where he was very much in demand as a speaker in Christian circles. But he was finding that all of this adulation that he was getting never really brought him the peace and the sense of belonging that his restless heart longed for so much. So he eventually walked away from it. And I know that some of you are in a position this morning where maybe you're having to make decisions about walking away from certain things and, and walking in another direction. Well, anyway, this was a big thing for Henry. And he went to a place called, called Daybreak. And there they took care of uh, mentally challenged people. Adults who could barely take care of themselves. They really couldn't. And this was so radical for him to go and spend uh, 10 years of his life in this community. Naturally, it was very awkward at first to make that transition. He was accustomed to addressing large crowds of admirers. But now he's speaking to people who didn't understand his big words, who grunted, who drooled, who made spastic movements during his homilies. And there was a resident named Bill who, didn't, if he didn't like the priest's sermon, he would just interrupt and mess everything up. And it says here in this article that I have, that Nguyen found that his beautiful words and arguments had little relevance to what the residents were going through. To those damaged bodies and damaged minds, his prestigious resume meant nothing. They couldn't even read his books. All that mattered was whether he loved them. A priest, Henry, who knew nothing of normal household duties like cooking, ironing, caring for children, found himself all thumbs when asked to care for disabled residents. In time, though, he did come to love these people. And in the dawning of compassion for the broken bodies around him, he began to sense, at last, how God could love a broken person like himself. You see, Henry's trying to find himself. And God is helping Henry find himself, not through the intellectual pursuits of Harvard or being one of the most popular speakers in Christian circles, but in dealing with people who are the weakest of the weak. He says, it took me a long time to feel safe in this unpredictable climate, and I still have moments in which I clamp down and tell everyone to shut up, get in line, listen to me, and believe in what I say. But I am also getting in touch with the mystery that leadership for a large part means to be led. And I discover that I am learning many new things, not just about the pains and the struggles of wounded people, but also about their unique gifts and graces. They teach me about joy and peace, 
love and care and prayer, what I could never have learned in the academy. They also teach me that nobody else could have taught me about grief and violence, fear and indifference. And most of all, they give me a glimpse of God's first love, often at moments when I feel, start feeling depressed and discouraged. If any of you here this morning are dealing with depression and discouragement, I think you'll rarely find a more powerful writer than this Henry Nguyen. He tells about um, one person at daybreak called Adam. And their relationship is celebrated in, in the book. It's called Adam, God's Beloved. Adam was the weakest and most disabled person in the community. Although in his 20s, Adam couldn't speak, dress or undress himself, could not walk alone or eat without help. Instead of counseling Ivy League students and juggling a busy schedule, Nguyen had to learn a new set of skills, how to feed, change, and bathe Adam, how to support uh, his glass as he drank, and how to push his wheelchair over a road full of potholes. He ministered not to leaders and intellectuals, but to a young man who was considered by many a vegetable, a useless person who should not have been born. And yet Nguyen gradually learned that he, not Adam, was the chief beneficiary in this strange, misfitted relationship. From the hours spent with Adam, Nguyen gained an inner peace that made most of his other, more high-minded tasks seem boring and superficial. And as he sat beside that silent child man, he realized how obsessive, how marked with rivalry and competition was his prior drive towards success in academia. From Adam, he learned that what makes us human is not our mind, but our heart. Not our ability to think, but our ability to love. Whoever speaks about Adam as a vegetable or animal-like creature misses the sacred mystery that Adam is fully capable of receiving and giving love. Well, he says, I'm going to conclude with this statement of Henry, where he says, keep your eyes on the one who refuses to turn stones into bread. Who's that? Jesus. Jump from great heights or rule with great temporal power. Keep your eyes on the one who says, blessed are the poor, the gentle, those who mourn and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted in the cause of uprightness. Keep your eyes on the one who is poor with the poor, weak with the weak, and rejected with the rejected. That one, Jesus, is the source of all our peace. To me, that's a very powerful illustration of what it means to love our neighbors. Did Jesus answer well? Well, earlier we said he always did, and here's another example in verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. I'm in Mark 12, 
33. To love him with all of your heart, with all of your understanding, with all of your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wow, here's a Pharisee that's getting it. And there were Pharisees that got it when we read the book of Acts. So don't give up on the Pharisees. They might seem like a hopeless bunch the way that Jesus talks to them in Matthew 23. But when you read the book of Acts, many of them came to the faith in Christ. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Well, I hope here at Anderson Church you're still asking questions. But they tried and tried and tried and tried to trip Jesus up, and they just couldn't do it. He always seemed to have the right response, and now they're stopping doing that. Of course, they're doing something worse. Now they're probably planning and plotting how to kill him. It's very easy to end the sermon right there, but I don't think Mark wants us to do that. If you carry on reading, and I'm just going to do this from memory, you'll find in the next few verses, Jesus is now asking the question. Up to this point, he had always been the one that other people were asking the questions of. Now he's asking the question, who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? Who is the anointed one? So that's the next step. That's the step into the kingdom for this Pharisee and for all Pharisees and for all people to acknowledge Jesus for who he really is. And then after that, we have the famous story of a little lady quietly, secretly coming into church and giving her last mite, right? I always say to myself, why are these stories pulled together the way they are? And the story ends there, and the whole chapter ends there by saying she gave all that she had. And I think that is just a powerful conclusion to this sermon this morning and to this passage of G on Jesus. To love God with all of your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself, takes everything that you have. You have to lay it all on the line to be part of the kingdom of God, right? Theologically, we call that surrender. Surrender. Surrender to something that might be very challenging, as it was for Henry, and yet can open up a whole new world for you. Let me ask you a question. Some of you here, many of you here are church members at Anderson, right? Some of you are guests, visitors today. Some of you are thinking of transferring in. Hopefully, none of you are thinking of transferring out but that might be true too. But those of you that are staying around for a while, what kind of church do you want to have here at Anderson? Wouldn't it be the most powerful thing for 2011 if we could become a church family that was truly loving God with all of our heart, truly loving one another as we love ourselves, that love would permeate this church family, whether you're, not just while you're in the building, 
hopefully loving one another, getting along with one another, embracing one another, but as we go out into our community. And I'll tell you something, but the Bible tells us that, and Jesus himself tells us that people will notice when God's love is displayed through his people. That is my desire, and I know it's the desire of uh, Addy and Alan as they're leading out with this seminar on Friday evening. Encourage you all to come to that. I know it's the desire of someone like Ellen White and the Bible writers who talk about revival and reformation. I want you to try and come to that on Tuesday evening. Um, but whether you're able to or not, let's make a decision right now, a choice right now, that you and I are going to open ourselves up, allow God to open our, us up to experience different dimensions of His love than we've ever experienced before in 2011. Let's pray. Gracious God, we love you because you first loved us. And that's especially seen when Jesus died on the cross. Again, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts that Jesus loved you the way he did. But now, Lord, we must learn from that, and we must experience that in our own lives. Sometimes we, we, we feel that it's easier to love you than it is to love other people. But whatever we're experiencing, whatever we're understanding, Lord, I ask for a mighty moving of your Holy Spirit on every person here, every man and woman, every boy and girl. And I pray, Lord, that we'll be constantly being refreshed in our relationship with you and with one another. We'll be constantly growing. We'll not be a stagnant church family, but we will be like a, a healthy tree in Lebanon, a cedar tree that just its fragrance just permeates everywhere we go, the fragrance of love. Make us this kind of people, Lord, for we ask this in Jesus' holy name. And all the people said, Amen. Amen.